in Mark's gospel, you have miracle after miracle with Jesus walking on water and multiplying food and healing everyone who even just touches the edge of his clothes. And then we get to Mark 8. We find it says that the Pharisees came in order to argue with Jesus, hoping to find him saying something wrong. And they demanded to see a sign from heaven to prove to them that he was a man of integrity or sincerity or something to that effect. Chapter 8, verse 12, And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? No sign's going to be given it. What a fascinating expression. First off, do you not love the exasperation of Jesus. He's used to these people who come to him with hunger for the Father, hunger to be healed, hunger to have forgiveness, hunger to find life, hunger for love, and they knowingly come to Jesus because they can sense that he is an an access point, a doorway, a window. They sense that Jesus is this connection place between them and that which they seek. But these Pharisees do not show up hungry, they don't show up expectant, they don't show up with a motive to find God. Rather, they are threatened by Jesus. His lifestyle is different, his teachings are different, his beliefs are different, his behavior is different from them. And it seems like they're not there to find more of God, they're not there to learn, they're not there to grow. They are there to justify themselves, and in order to justify themselves, they have to undermine him, discredit him, invalidate him. So he sighs deeply in his spirit. I don't know if you know the environment that a a large number of people coming with a true motive to meet God, they want God. God shows up and does mighty things. The, The power, the presence, the sweetness, the flow that is cultivated in a space where enough hearts are genuinely wanting the Father. God finds that irresistible. His favorite place on earth is not a place, but it's a posture of heart. And then these Pharisees have the exact opposite posture. They show up to find fault, to criticize, to expose, and their accusation against the Word of God made flesh is that he is not following the Word of God in the book. Hmm... It seems on the surface to be about God, the things of God. It seems to be about doing things God's way. It seems to be about pleasing the Lord, but actually it's about being right, being good, being better than. It's actually a self-salvation project, a self-justification project, a self-righteousness project. It seems to be about God, but it's not about God. It's turning the things of God and about God into ultimately tools of self-exaltation. And in fact, it's a dangerous thing. So right after this scene, Jesus gets in the boat with the disciples and he says, you guys need to be on guard. You guys need to be watching out. You guys need to be alert and careful and avoiding on purpose very, very carefully the yeast of the Pharisees. Yeast, you know, you put a little bit in a batch of dough and the whole thing infects the whole. It changes the substance of everything it infects. And all you have to do to be infected is let a little bit in. A different gospel, not Mark, says 
the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, a hypocrite is just the Greek word for an actor, a stage player, someone who puts on a persona, puts on a voice, puts on a, a wardrobe, and pretends to be someone they're not, presents a, a vision of themselves to the world that is not really who they are. And Jesus says that these Pharisees present a vision of themselves to the world, that they are the people who are about God. They are the people who are about God's word, God's voice, God's worship, God's sacrifices, God's covenant. But in fact, under the hood, if you pop the hood and look around and dig around, it's not that at all. And if you let them influence you, you will be infected with the same dangerous, demonic, evil, wicked thing. Now, notice this expression. He says, why does this generation seek a sign? Why are you highlighting generation? I find it interesting that Jesus operates in the same kind of mindset that God in the Old Testament, particularly I'm thinking of the Exodus, where God becomes displeased with that generation he delivered out of slavery in Egypt. And in the wilderness, they don't trust him. They grumble, they complain, they want to go back, they're mad, they find fault with his leaders who are doing nothing but obey his voice. They pretentiously presume to tell the leaders what God's really about when they themselves haven't been called to serve in that position. And ultimately, they're rebellious, hard-hearted, stubborn, willful, stiff-necked, grumbling, complaining, and negativity imposing their will on the universe rather than receiving from the Almighty with a pliable and grateful heart the good gifts of a good father. Instead, they are the grumbling, whining, never happy, implacable, unpleasable, ratty, selfish children. And God says, I'm so frustrated with you that I'm not going to let any of you except for Joshua and Caleb enter into the land that I promised your forefathers. And so they wander in the desert, 40 years waiting for them all to die so their children can enter into Abraham's promise. It's interesting, isn't it? He says he's displeased with that generation. Later we read, about under Joshua, the people of the Lord served God all the days of Joshua. But then another generation grew up who didn't know Moses and didn't know the mighty works of the Lord, and they forgot the Lord. And so they didn't serve the Lord. That's interesting. So it's possible, apparently it's a biblical concept for there to be a prevailing spirit in a generation, prevailing moral foundational figures that they choose to follow in a generation. Joshua was a, a foundational guidance, uh, a source of guidance. Joshua was a, a foundational source of guidance and leadership, or Samuel was a foundational source of influence and guidance and leadership. So the influences that any given generation chooses to follow are deeply significant. We remember, of course, the scene when Josiah rediscovers the Bible that they lost, and as he reads it, his heart is torn because he realizes there's so much of the Word of God, the commands of God, that they're not following, so he quickly calls for like a national fast. Under Josiah's leadership, there's a generation that pleases the Lord, but then under different evil kings, 
people's worst impulses are tolerated or celebrated or welcomed. People really need influences that help them put to death those things in them that need to die and help them steward and bring to life those impulses that are in them through the influence of God. People need help. We all need influences to help us put certain things in us to death and bring other things in us to fruition. But it's interesting, isn't it, this word generation. So then later in Mark 8, 38, Jesus says, whoever's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of them, will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels? Or Mark 9, 19, Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you and how long am I to bear with you? Bring me the man and he heals him. But listen to that frustration. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I going to have to put up with you? That's fascinating, isn't it? The idea that Jesus endorses that sort of Old Testament vision that each successive generation has a, a spirit about it, a character about it, an attitude about it, a prevailing heart posture about it. It doesn't mean everyone in the generation is of that posture, but there's a prevailing heart posture in each successive generation. Kind of leads me to a series of questions. Is every generation unique? What is it that God might say about our generation, the generation in which I live? What is it that he might say about our cultural context? What sorts of challenges might be stronger in this generation than they were in different generations? For example, we know that Moses' life was made hard, was made difficult. Jeremiah's life was made difficult, not because of his infidelity or proclivities toward temptation, but because he lived in a time in which other people's disobedience made his life in this life miserable. Now, of course, the Bible keeps the big picture, which is we have to measure in light of eternity and the eternal rewards of faithfulness to God and his kingdom. But, 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 on the judgment, it seems like what generation we were in will factor into how our situation is assessed by the Lord. Because our challenges were endemic to our generation. Also, I would kind of finish with this. In every generation, it's very easy to only see hard-heartedness, faithlessness, resistance to the kingdom. I think that is sometimes misguided. Sometimes under the surface, people are a lot hungrier for God than they let on on the surface. And sometimes people are a lot more open to receiving the kingdom than they might seem. Jesus actually says, behold, the fields are ripe for harvest. The lack is not hunger in the world, but credible witnesses who are willing to deal with the pain of the harvest, the discomfort of the harvest, the cost for the harvest workers has always been exceedingly high, but the rewards are exceedingly high. 
before Jesus' suffering, he looked over the city of Jerusalem and he wept. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you. How often I've longed to gather you to myself like a mother hen gathers its chicks, but you are not willing. I don't know if you can feel the ache in Jesus's heart for the very generation that he is exasperated with, that he has deep sighs of frustration with, that he says, how long am I going to have to put up with you? There's a tension between the exasperation and anger on the one hand and the tender, enduring affection on the other. What I don't want is for us to get a self-pitying attitude about the times in which we live. What I do want us to recognize is that the times in which we live have specific and unique challenges that require us to rise up in great power and strength to grow in love. History belongs to him who is patient, patient enough to unravel the knots in people's minds and hearts and lives. As we were praying about this last night, I got this picture of a dog whose nose was full of porcupine quills because it had gotten into the wrong place. (laughs) And as I pictured the veterinarian pulling out every quill, does the dog want you to remove the quills? (laughs) Maybe, but definitely no. Every quill had to be carefully, patiently, gently removed one at a time. And what it required on the part of a doctor is the willingness to endure the displeasure of the dog for the sake of the dog. There are thorny issues of unbelief and false doctrine and sin and wrong values built into our culture. And if we don't have love for them, we will not have the patience to gently instruct. We will not have the patience to mentor. We will not have the patience. Jesus continued to eat at the house of Simon the Pharisee and continued to meet with Nicodemus. He continued to go after the Zacchaeus the tax collector. He continued to stop for the Samaritan woman. He continued to stop for the crowds when all he wanted was to be left alone. He continued to have patience for his generation in their various and sundry difficulties because patience is a byproduct of love. And he had love in abundance, so he had patience in abundance. There's your thoughts.